What if I told you that Credit Suisse, one of finance's most foundational banks, was helped brought to its knees by a charismatic bogan playing posh from Bundaberg? This podcast is about a fella called Lex Greensill. And among many other things, this podcast is about how he roped the likes of Brexit instigator David Cameron, current Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, to even Vision Fund Uber and WeWork investor Masayoshi Son into his sprawling supply chain finance scandal. The full story of how Lex talked and awkwarded his way into the central halls of power is immense. And the guest on today's podcast, the incredible investigative journalist Duncan Maven, wrote a book documenting all of this called A Pyramid of Lies. This podcast with Duncan will cover a bit of the following and then more as well. Is there a universe where Lex could have continued to fake it until he would make it? How did all these people with big reputations fall for Lex's charm? What was the role in offshore finance in all of this? What are the similarities between Lex and WeWork's Adam Newman? Then plus, right at the end, Duncan delivers a direct message down the barrel straight to Lex. And before we get into it, and I remind you all to pump your good juice into the algorithm with those five-star reviews, I actually just wanted to bring your attention to the newsletter that I've launched. I will be sending at least one email a week to you, mostly more in-depth and behind the scenes of the podcast, but as well, the occasional Curious Worldview Weekender, which will be a nice companion to a Sunday morning coffee. It's the top link in this podcast description. Did you know that Tim Ferriss values his email list higher than his podcast? I want a more direct relationship with you, my very dear listener. So put your email in. Well, first click the link, then put your email in and let me learn a little bit more about you. And with all of that out of the way, with absolutely no further ado, here is the great and powerful Duncan Maven. All right, mate. Has your proximity to Lex ruined how you relate to Australians? No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, I have a few good Australian friends. And actually Australian family as well. So um, definitely not. Did you end up um, spending much time in Bundaberg or Sydney uh, in research for this book? In Bundaberg? No, I didn't. No, I didn't at all. Um, I am told that I, you know, the book is very well read there. I believe it's sold out there. Uh, and I'm also told it's kind of divided the community. Um, you know, there's some people who've done very well out of green cell farming, which has received an awful lot of money from green cell capital. And so those people, I think, are very supportive of Lex and his family. And then there are a whole bunch of other people who um, feel like they didn't do so well out of it, who are farmers whose farms were squeezed by green cell farming, and they feel pretty upset about what happened. It's just such a stark contrast and subversion of your expectations of what a bogan from rural Queensland would aspire to the idea that you know he wanted to be knighted in the uk and wanted to be in the top class drinking the fanciest champagne it's so opposite to what i would expect from a fellow from bundaberg um yeah i think that's right i think lex so my understanding of lex as a kid was that he was sort of you know bullied a little bit he was not a very big kid it was a very kind of rough and tumble place to grow up and uh he was on the other hand quite intellectual 
and uh, that that was how he saw his way out, right? So he kind of, my, his brains were his way out. And then I think he realized or he believed that actually to make a lot of money, he had to sort of portray himself as a guy who came from, you know, the right side of the tracks, as it were, or, you know, could mix with the wealthy upper class people. Uh, kind of finance people and politicians in the UK. And so it, it, it's definitely odd, right? It definitely means he stood out. Um, but he was kind of stand out from quite an early age. You know, I know now, since since I wrote the book, I, I probably know more people in Bundaberg than I did um, before I wrote the book. And I know now that at school, he was already, you know, as a, as a fairly young kid, he was kind of dressing in a way that other people found was odd so that he was you know an example is he was he was a leading light in the debating club at school and where the other guys would show up to the debating club in Bundaberg in you know shorts and t-shirts because it's like subtropical or whatever it is um Lex would show up like in a stiff shirt and you know long trousers and you know he, he, this is kind of when he's like 12 13 and was already regarded as a little bit odd for that Interesting. Do you know where in in talking to people from Bundaberg and being the recipient of anecdotes such as that, have you come to a understanding for where Lex just got his intense ambition from? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm not a psychologist, so I'm like about <laughs> to engage in, you know, a field of research that I'm not qualified to engage in. But like the pop psychology of it would be this kind of bullying, right? Like this is this is his way to get back. Like he can't he can't get one over on the big kids when he's growing up by like out uh fighting them or outrunning them. He gets one over on them by being kind of smarter than them and, you know, by helping his his parents have the biggest farm in, in the area. Mm-hmm. And so I think that is sort of, yeah, it seems like a logical place to start when you look at why, why is Lex ambitious? Um, you know, I think he clearly, he, like him and his brothers, um, all three of them, I think, get kind of pushed around a little bit. And so I think this is a, there is a sense of like sticking it to these people who pushed him about when he was a kid. You know, when, when one of the other anecdotes I heard was, um, you know, one of the other anecdotes I heard was that when he was, you know, running Greensill Capital and making a lot of money, he would, if people from Bundaberg who he'd grown up with were in the UK, for instance, and he heard about it, he would offer up to them, hey, you know, why don't you go and fly on my private jet? I'll, I'll fly you to Spain or, or Italy on my private jet. And it was this kind of like showing off to them, you know, that look, I might you might have thought I was just some little, you know, smaller kid than you when we were all growing up, but look at me now. Mm. We're all just trying to get back at our high school bullies at the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, it feels yeah. like if half the town's on his side and, you know, the book is flying off the shelves there, in some sense, he sort of has um, fulfilled that getting back at the people who didn't think he would ever become much from his childhood. You know, he's a well-known guy in Bundaberg now. People knew that he rubbed shoulders with David Cameron. It doesn't really matter how it all ended up. Yeah. Like, this is a guy from Bundaberg who has done something on the international stage. 
Yeah. Yeah, I think that I think there's an element of truth to that. But I think the story's not finished yet, right? So I think, you know, there's two things I would say to that. One is what I'm told, you know, as it collapses, when there are like these rare moments of introspection, because I think Lex, you know, firmly believes he never did anything wrong. <laughs> In these rare moments of like him, him kind of thinking, maybe I did, what he had he would say to people you know, brought shame on the family name or, or words to that effect. Yeah. So I think he was aware that actually how it ended up, how it ended up was not good for his family. And I guess that is the danger, right? When you call it Greensill Farming Group or Greensill Capital or Greensill Bank, your name is all over it. So when it goes wrong, you know, it's your name. Um, so there's that. And then I think the other thing I would say is it isn't over yet, right? And so at the minute, he's still a wealthy guy. The farm has all this money. It's you know one of the biggest uh, agribusinesses in, in the region, if not in Australia, I think now. And, um, you know, but it is not over. And there are criminal investigations in Switzerland and Germany. There are some pretty big lawsuits in Australia. There's an SFO investigation that's kind of linked to Greensill here in the UK. Um, you know, he's been named personally in the criminal investigation in Switzerland, for instance. So, you know, that is like it's one thing to be the big personality in Bundaberg, but not if you're the big personality in Bundaberg because of things that went really badly wrong. Is there a genuine threat that he uh, serves uh, jail time? Uh you know, I well again. You know, that would be me getting into another area that I'm not qualified to get into, <laughs> as well as psychology, to kind of uh, deeply into the law. But I think in Switzerland, look, I think the case in Switzerland seems to be the most, fur, you know, furthest along. It's progressed the most, and the Swiss authorities seem uh, like they they are serious about trying to uh, pursue criminal. Uh, a criminal investigation. They've named a bunch of bunch of guys who worked at Credit Suisse, which was you know the bank that was deeply involved with the green cell funds, and and Lex is also um, party to their investigation. And so mm. you know that is a like a, you know I, I don't know how that ends up, but it it seems very serious. And certainly you know I wouldn't want to be the subject of a criminal investigation. No, certainly not. Okay, so that's a little bit about where he is at the moment, um, but that does beg the question, how did he get there? Um, yeah. At the foundation of this entire book, which documents the Greensill fraud and scandal and in some language, Ponzi scheme, um, is something we've already touched upon. His intense sort of charisma, ambition, uh, ability to be a salesperson. So in one sense to start the story, I think uh, the anecdote from when he was working at that Sydney firm is a good way just to highlight what type of character we're talking about here. Yeah, so you're talking about what, way back, like this is 20 odd years ago when he's yeah. first starting out. He is uh, a guy with essentially like n no experience in business or finance, right? He's... he's uh, a guy with a law degree and some experience of working for um, like a local farming lobby group. Um, nevertheless, he has a, a, a resume of about 20 pages, um, <laughs> which is pretty extensive for anyone. Um, and, you know, lots of pretty extravagant claims of being kind of, you know, 
will I'm exaggerating a little bit, but it's like world champion debater and things yeah, like that, yeah. which kind of laughable. But he, he you know, he, he he walks into that this firm, which is um, kind of a, it's like the remnants of a property development company um, that is kind of flipped into like a, a hot house for for tech startups and he walks in and says look i want to be paid you know i i think i think you should hire me he says the guy who's running it i think you should hire me and i think you should pay me um you know basically the salary that you're paying the top guys who've been here 20 years and the guy sort of laughs at him it's like that's a ridiculous claim um nevertheless i really like your ambition um so why don't you come and work here and that sort of thing actually works for him for the next 20 years, right? <laughs> he, he continues to make ever more kind of elaborate or extravagant uh, claims, you know, ever more kind of like, hey, you know, next, I, we're all gonna be billionaires. You know, within a few years of that, he's in Morgan Stanley and he's saying, we're all gonna be billionaires. If you guys back me, we're all gonna be billionaires. And everybody kind of thinks similar to what happened in Sydney. People kind of go, well, that's ridiculous. But, you know, maybe we'll be multimillionaires. So let's just, like, this guy's crazy, but let's just go along for the ride. And, you know, that sort of serves him pretty well. And, you know, good luck to him, right? Like, that's there's nothing really wrong with that. Right. Um, with a lot of ambition and, you know, setting the bar really high, and you know, trying to, whatever metaphor you want to use, shoot for the moon. And, you know, if people, people buy into it, well done, right? It's that, that's all fine, I think. It's uh, when it becomes sort of, uh, unconstrained and it, it sort of strays into areas where he's kind of not telling the truth or he's, you know, which, which happens a lot, or he's, you know, deliberately misleading people so that they'll provide financing to him. Then, then you get into a whole other area, but yeah, yeah. I think, you know, it's, there are very early signs that this is a guy who is incredibly ambitious. He will say, he will say and do whatever it takes. <laughs> um, and some people go along with that because, you know, that's kind of the way the world works. Is there some alternative universe where he just managed to continue to fake it until he ultimately made it? Uh, you know, that that's a really interesting question. I've thought about it a lot. Um, in some ways there is, because there is a sort of, you know, we can get into it, but there's a legitimate business inside Greensill Capital Um there's a non there's an illegitimate one too, but a, there is a legitimate business. So there is a, there is a universe in which that legitimate business carries on. Um, the problem with the idea that there is an alternative, you know, uh, universe in which it's all okay, is that that universe probably does not contain Lex Greensill because he he is who he is, and you know I, my view is he he's you know there, he's shown no signs at any stage throughout you know his entire career and even since it's collapsed that he's this is a guy who you know wants to do things on the level that he knows where to draw the line um that he's a you know a guy who you can trust frankly if he did in this alternative universe carry on and eventually make it would the ends have justified the means uh well it's a good question um, he, he's, he, look, I think that's a question that is part of, like, it's a big question for our time, right? Because it's, it is, you know, he is very similar in many ways to 
Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos and, you know, the guy at WeWork and so on, where it, it is that kind of, you, you know, use the mm. phrase, fake it till you make it. Um, well, you know, difficult to say, right? Like, I think he, his, I think he knew that there were things wrong with his business. Um, and his view was, if we grow it big enough, I can kind of deal with those things. Mm. Um, but, you know, isn't that isn't that kind of true of all people who, you know, many, many people who go, kind of go rogue in finance? Um, they, you know, is that any different to the rogue traders who are like, oh, I'm in the hole. If I just keep betting more and more money, I'll get myself <laughs> out of the hole. I mean, I think that's kind of what happens to every everybody in, mm. you know, um, in these situations. There's a great anecdote from Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs. I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's not actually one anecdote. It's multiple anecdotes of um, Steve, one, selling features that don't exist, demoing features that didn't exist and being a total fabrication, um, ultimately then delivering in, in the final hour, and Apple is what it is now, an incredible company, and Steve Jobs is remembered as an absolutely incredible founder, although... If you read that same biography, you should also come to the conclusion that he was a phenomenal asshole. But um, mm -hmm. I, I don't know. It's just like it's different fields. But no, sorry, you go on. I totally understand where you're coming from. I think it is different, and I and and I think I don't want to uh, under undersell uh, the level of wrongdoing. So I, I don't. I don't. I'm I'm very careful not to use the word fraud because you know lex has not been uh convicted or Alleged. even charged with fraud yet um you know he has been accused in parliament in the uk of running a ponzi scheme and by others so you know i think we're free to talk about that um <laughs> what i what i would say though is there are like things coming out now um and things i wrote about in the book that show that this is clearly somebody doing something that this is more than like saying you know oh uh, you know, my the iPhone will be able to, you know, have Google Maps on it when it doesn't yet have it. Mm -hmm. This is there. The, for instance, there is a particular loan. So you know what's wrong with Lex is he he's lending other people's money, right? He's going to um, Credit Suisse or previous previous to that a big uh, asset manager called Gam, and he's taking he's persuading them to give give their clients money to him, and he is lending it out to. Uh, borrowers, companies that are that are essentially he's sourcing, right? And he's saying, "Oh, these guys are are good for these loans." So um, he's lending out other people's money. So then, where, where it goes wrong is when you start to look at some of the loans and some of the loan deals, and these are loans that are clearly never going to get paid back. These are often loans to friends and family of Lex uh, or people close to Lex. Mm. Um, you know, there's one that is mentioned in a court case. Uh, has been mentioned in a court case recently in Australia, which I wrote a little bit about, but there's more detail out on it now, you know, where they take some money from this asset manager, GAM. They they take, uh, you know, 20 odd million dollars and they Greensill lends it to this company, small kind of small industrial conglomerate in the UK, um, which you know may or may not be a like legitimate business itself. But they lend this money twenty odd million dollars. The, the 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 legal documents that have come out recently show that uh, of the twenty odd million, five million went to Lex as a as an arrangement fee. 
five million went to one of the directors. I think another five or more million went to another one of the directors. So as arrangement fees. So the, this, the loan, what was left in the company was only a few million dollars. Like how are they ever going to pay that back? Like mm -hmm. they, they didn't mm -hmm. get the money. It went, it went straight out the door. You know, there were loans to Lex's, Lex's neighbor. Actually, you know, it's more than Lex's neighbor. It's a guy who lives in a property on Lex, Lex's land. Um, you know, this is, this is not quite right, right? There, there are loans that he, he makes to um, guys he's known for a few years, and uh, they, just, they just get rolled over and over and over again. So when they come due, rather than, claim, rather than the loan be paid back, Lex just sort of automatically makes a new loan. So they of the same amount or more even. And so those loans never, ever get paid back. So he's sort of sort of suggesting, you know, to the, the investors, uh, the people whose money he's taken that, hey, you know, these are great loans. I'm giving you money. It's coming back. But actually it never does come back. In, that, in fact, there's no expectation it'll come back. <laughs> so that's that's a bit different, I think, than, you know, claiming that your your Mac can do things that, you know, are still in the research and development stage. Because the victim ultimately is being taken for a far bigger ride, or the consequences are far more severe. Well, because I think you're you're outright lying. It's it's not like hey, this loan, you know, like if you're saying hey, there's this this thing on an iPhone or a Mac that's in research development, and we'll get it later. Um, you know, that this is like these are these are supposed to be super safe loans mm. that you know pay a certain return, um, whereas in fact. They're highly risky loans that are not being paid back ever. They're not really loans at all, right? If it's a loan that never gets paid back, what is that? That's not, that's not a loan. That's just a, a payment yeah. to a friend of yours. You know, <laughs> and you take it as well. Um, and so that, that whole structure only works so long as you can keep persuading people to put more and more money into it. Um, you know, that's, that's what a Ponzi scheme is, right? It's, um, it works. It's, a, it's an investment that works so long as more money keeps coming in. But as soon as the money stops coming in and investors want their money back, you kind of look and go, well, actually, there isn't any money back because I took it all. I spent it. Okay, so we've touched upon so far parts of the green cell empire, which is multiple businesses that are legitimate businesses. And then the example you just gave, which is just completely illegitimate business. So to really get the play by play from Lex, the overly ambitious banker, through Lex, the unicorn founder, through to Lex, the disgraced financier fraudster. One should listen to or read the book, for sure, to get the true bay by play. For the sake of the podcast, I thought it'd be best to just ask you if you could separate it into two sort of columns. The Green Seal Affair, how much was Ponzi scheme lies, and then how much was perfectly legal within the bounds of uh, of creative accounting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there are very different views on this, right? So we have to take a bit of a step back and say, what is it that he's trying to sell? What, it, what kind of finance is Lex Greensill into? And it's something called supply chain finance. It is essentially you provide loans to companies to pay their suppliers. Right. So it's, it's sort of short term loans. You know, it's like a, a factory that buys widgets from its supplier and you you provide a loan to make that transaction happen more efficiently. So it should be really short term and that's why it should be safe. Um, and you provide like, you know, loads and loads and loads of these loans. And so um, 
again, so it becomes sort of safer. If any one loan collapses, it's not a big deal. So in theory, that stuff is is all legit. And it's something that's happened for, for decades, if not hundreds of years in different formats. Um, and Lex is in that business. Um, now, that immediately raises a question, right? Like, how can Lex be in this business if it's been around forever? How can you how can you get into this um, out of nowhere? And, you know, that's a very legitimate question and it's not a great answer for it. Um, <laughs> but what he does is he kind of essentially undercuts the banks on, on this business. So he takes, he goes to asset managers, GAM, Credit Suisse, and he says, look, I, I can do this business. If you give me some money, I don't, I'm not a bank. So if you give me some of your clients' money, I will finance these loans and, we, and your clients will get back, you know, a decent return. And um, that's kind of, in essence, what's happening. So how much of this is legitimate and how much of it isn't? Well, he deals with a lot of legitimate names. So, you know, Coca-Cola, uh, I think Ford Motor Company, Nestle, like a lot of like really big companies. Um, he doesn't make any money off those deals, right? Nothing at all. The the documents I've seen, green salt documents I've seen, all of the business he was doing, billions of dollars of transactions with big names, big sort of blue chip companies, he is making no money or a loss on those deals. Um, all of his profits are coming from a handful of other clients who are not big companies. Um, they're companies like uh, the one I mentioned earlier. It's like this little industrial conglomerate in the UK or his neighbor. In some cases, there are other supply chain finance businesses that are similar kind of startups to his own. And then there are a couple of big ones, bigger ones. So one is um, uh, Sanjeev Gupta, the, the steel magnates, um, metals business. And the other is a company called Bluestone Resources, which is a coal mining company uh, in West Virginia, owned by the governor of West Virginia in the US. And between those the, the, those sort of groups, that makes all of Greensill's profit. However, those loans are not supply chain finance loans at all. They're just kind of, you know, he takes the, the, the client money from Gamma uh, or Credit Suisse and hands it over with no expectation he'll ever get paid back, and he takes a cut. And so he's able to kind of show profits because his profits all come from this kind of high-risk lending. Um, and he's able to show kind of volume because the volume comes from the low-risk lending to blue-chip companies, which is entirely unprofitable. So, so how much of his business is legit and how much isn't? In the past, I've said, well, you know, based on the volume of transactions, maybe 75% is legit and 25% isn't. Um, but that might be a false way to look at it. I think uh, as I've learned more and more about green cell, I think probably a more accurate way to look at it is to say, well, let's look at how much profit was coming from uh, legitimate businesses and how much was coming from, you know, the the less legitimate stuff. And if you look at that, well, it's, it's essentially like the, the, there's nothing coming from the legitimate business that is not profitable. It's loss making. <laughs> and so the whole business is essentially, you know, stuff that should not exist. It is high risk. It is not what he's telling his clients they're getting. Is it a mastermind of accounting or a master of salesmanship that could make that exact scenario you just described possible? Uh, it's a little bit of both, right? So there's an accounting kind of trick in there and I'm a 
former chartered accountant before I was a journalist. I, w I was an accountant for about 10 years. So, you know, I admire the accounting trickery. <laughs> um, but it was giving you so some ideas. A, a little bit of, yeah. Um, it's uh, so the, the, there's definitely a little bit of that going on. So, um, you know, probably more relevant than the accounting per se is that there's a lot of like complexity around the structure of the investment vehicle. So they're layer upon layer of um, corporate entities. Some of them are green cell entities. Some of them are have other names. Um, he has a bank in Germany. Like all the money just gets funneled around in many, many different ways. And so that complexity is, is kind of, uh, important. Um, I think sales is super important. He is a great salesman. Um, and in fact, if he'd stayed as a salesman, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, there is an alternative universe there where he's just a really good salesman, yeah. but, um, you know, a salesman in charge of a bank is probably not a good thing. Um, and so I think, you know, he, he grows this business partly by convincing people, um, that he really has something magical when, of course, he doesn't. Um, but I think you know the the, the accounting stuff is is um, it's a it's a little complicated, but it's it's actually you know, it's not hard to find the problems in these in these loans. It's not it wasn't a tricky thing to do as a journalist. I you know anyone could have done it really, um, and many many you know I'm not the only journalist who found this stuff. By the way, like quite a lot of us. Uh, we're digging around and you know, googling and finding plenty of evidence that there was something wrong mm. here. I'm just thinking, you know, for my own business, it would be incredible if we could get Nestle, Coca-Cola, one of these massive companies on board, and we would happily uh, break even on it. Maybe even take a small loss because it gives you so much authority to then go out and mm. speak to other people. So. There is still, there must be Lex, this upstart. No one knows who he is. He's just raised money from GAM and Credit Suisse and he approaches these guys. There still must be, I'm imagining, an incredible amount of work and ambition and salesmanship that goes into creating these deals that then make all the other deals possible in the first place. Yeah, I think so. So I, I think um, he's, uh, well, he he has a lot of these relationships, right, with the big companies from his time in the banking world, right? So he worked for Morgan Stanley and he worked for Citigroup. And a lot of these relationships start there. Um, there's another element, by the way, and it, it comes out when he, you know, before Greensill Capital, when he works at Citigroup. And this is this is kind of the way Lex works. So there's, a, there's a, an anecdote in the book about um, he, one of the things that gets him in trouble at Citi is, he says that he's got this big deal with uh, Philips, the um, the Dutch. the Dutch electronics company, and uh, it turns out that actually he has a deal with like a Hungarian or Eastern European subsidiary of Philips, not not Philips <laughs> itself. You know, and this is kind of oh, classic hilarious. how Lexus <laughs> works. So you know, he's not lied, right? Like he didn't lie. He didn't, he, he, you know. But he certainly the people, other people in the room misunderstood right. um what Happy he to had said you. to them mm. yeah like i think he's he is well aware that he often will say things that leave somebody leave the person in the room with one impression when the reality is somewhat different mm. um and that's kind of that's kind of his style which maybe you know that maybe that's a good 
sales technique in some some cases. But yeah, I think you're right. Like getting all those big companies on board is legitimate, right? Like it is a legitimate way to to build a business is to go and talk to big credible businesses and use them as a kind of loss leader to to um, build your own brand. Uh, that's fine. But if the other business that you're building is then one where you're pretending it's uh, sort of nice, safe loans to stable companies, when in reality, it's high risk loans to companies that can't pay them back. Well, that's not great, right? Um, using credible names to mask a, a business that isn't, uh, isn't legitimate, that's a problem. Definitely a problem. Um, before the collapse, so in this stage where the business is actually all going very well and he's got all the right attention from all the right people and he's raising all these incredible amounts of money around the world, there are so many Adam Newman synchronicities with him in the way that he likes mm. to flaunt wealth, collect celebrity, um, even Masayoshi Son and the SoftBank uh, vision funder involved here. So... I wanted to ask you specifically, this is before the crash, when the business is doing well, some of the details of extravagance of wealth and Lex's utter desperation to be viewed as just someone important by people who he thought was important. Yeah. So I think I think it's a, it's interesting. And then the Adam Newman, um, you know, the sort of comparison with Adam Newman's really interesting. I, I don't know Adam Newman, but I, you know, I know what I've read and, um, <laughs> Uh, it seems like Adam Newman kind of enjoyed that celebrity lifestyle, right? Like that was part of what was driving him was he actually enjoyed, you know, spending lavishly and, and having a, a nonstop party lifestyle. With Lex, it's somewhat different, I think, um, because actually in his sort of quieter moments, in some ways he's kind of conservative, right? Like he, he um, is, you know, he doesn't have a, he has like a nice car, but it's not something people people kind of remark on the fact that his car is, you know, it's okay, but it's nothing special. You know, driving around a Ferrari, um, you know, it's a pretty sort of quiet home life in some respects, but with, with, but what he does have is like a fleet of private jets, um, expensive suits. You know, he goes to dinner at great restaurants, um, will buy the most expensive bottle of wine. Um, but with Lex, that is not, I don't think that's about him, you know, that is not the 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 objective like the, the the lavish lifestyle is not the objective it is it is the means it's like you know by presenting himself as a wealthy successful businessman lex sort of believes he will sort of you know to use the phraseology of the day he'll kind of manifest that you know <laughs> he he will become a rich successful businessman by persuading people that he already is one um, and be, and I think he's sort of right to some degree, right? Like that that sort of those outward displays of of wealth um, attract people like David Cameron and you know plenty of others who um, add more credibility to who Lex Greensill is, and that brings in more money. And you know it's it's a it's a really interesting piece of you know human psychology, and I think that may be his genius right like that may be well and it's again i think it's like a real sales um kind of sales profession technique to sort of say well if, if everybody thinks i'm really rich they'll want to come and spend time with me and then some of that money will rub off on me and, and so on but yeah it's interesting it's not you know the the example 
that, that's really kind of top of my mind always is, you know, the Adam Newman, the famous Adam Newman story is that we work private jet and they're kind of all partying and, and taking drugs on the plane and stuff. And on Lex's private jet, it is cups of tea uh, <laughs> and it's work. Everybody is like the laptops are out, you know, the, the craziest it gets is somebody might take their suit jacket off and roll up their sleeves. Mm. Um, but it's, it's, it's all work. And I think he is kind of a workaholic, right? I think he is, um, you know, he makes the case quite often that uh, when people criticize him for having the private jet, so some of the investors, uh, the soft banks and others say to him, look, you know, this is a bit extravagant. You got like, you have a whole fleet of private jets. Goldman Sachs doesn't have a fleet of private jets. What do you, you know, <laughs> this doesn't look good. He, he'll say, um, well, yeah, but you know, it's where I do my work. I'm on the plane all the time and I work on the plane. So, you know, it's a legitimate, it's a place for me. It's not, it's not just, a, a, you know, being flash. This is because I, I'm flying so often. Remote and, office. You know, I don't want to stop working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. I mean, with, whilst reading the book, there is a part of me that found the story extra intriguing because I know so intimately North Queensland and my family's all from there. And it's like, this guy is rubbing shuttles with David Cameron and creating all this amazing business. And then, it, so there's a part of me that thinks he's so competent in so many ways, but seemingly just ethically has zero compass at all. Um, you know, mm. and, and to a degree, as long as it serves his final purpose, he's willing to cross that line, um, which makes it, you know, like so tragic uh, to, to a degree. Yeah. I, I don't know how much I'm just projecting my own, you know, thoughts onto it there. I, I kind of agree with you, actually. You know, like um, there was when I first started talking to people about Lex uh, as a journalist, there were definitely a couple of people I, I talked to who would say, there were so many skeptical people about Lex Greensill, but there were, there were a couple of them who would say to me, look, you know, I don't want to bash the guy. Like, he, he you know, he's he's a, like, they, they liked the fact that he was kind of an outsider, mm. right? There were, there were definitely some people in finance circles who would say to me, you know, come on, we, we, we shouldn't be giving this guy a hard time. He's, he's like, uh, you know, we should be rooting for him. He's, he's an outsider. We should be supporting guys like this. Mm. Um, and that, like, I, I get that, right? Like, I, there's an element of that that I kind of, um, I believe in too, but not when he's doing things that are wrong. <laughs> no, of course, of course. Um, you brought up David Cameron a little bit earlier in the Guardian review of your book that had such a good line. Um, but this, you know, for the context for the audience is just after David Cameron's ushered in Brexit. And then like next time he's in the news is he's roped up in this massive scan scandal where a bunch of the British taxpayer money has been lost. Um, but the, the review said, um, yes, they perfectly surmised the relationship between Lex and Dave Cameron by saying Lex got the class, David got the money. Yeah. So, um, well, well, Lex had kind of got into Downing Street um, when Cameron was prime minister. He he got a sort of uh, there, there was a civil servant, um, a very senior civil servant who'd been around the UK uh, government for many years, who'd ended up at Morgan Stanley, and then he'd gone back into government when Cameron was there. And 
around that time, it was kind of post-financial crisis. The UK government is looking for ways to cut costs. And the report comes out and it says, you know, one way to cut it would, could, could be this stuff called supply chain finance. And so this civil servant turns around and he says, um, well, I know a guy at Morgan Stanley. He was like the guy advocating this thing. So Lex kind of gets his foot in the door because of this, right? So he gets like a, a sort of very loose role to give a bit of advice to the government on supply chain finance, which he, because he's like screen cell, turns into like, you know, an amazing opportunity where he's suddenly got business cards with 10 Downing Street on them. He's holding meetings in 10 Downing Street. He's, you know, inviting kind of former colleagues and business partners in and, and showing them around as though he owns the place. Um, but, you know, as a result, he sort of gets to know some people. Um, again, people kind of laugh at him, um, but, you know, admire his ambition whilst laughing behind his back. He gets to know David Cameron a little bit. And then again, because he's Lex and he understands what kind of motivates people, when Cameron leaves office, he makes an offer to him to come and join Greensill Capital. They they kind of have to fudge around it a little bit because of the rules about what politicians in the UK can do um, after they leave office. But but essentially, they give him a sort of special advisor role. I mean, ultimately, it's like a board level role. Um, Cameron is, uh, you know, what's appealing. So what's appealing to, to Lex is pretty obvious, right? He, the massive credibility and Cameron's connections. Um, that is absolutely what Lex wants. And, you know, as the relationship progresses, he's basically badgering Cameron the whole time. You know, you got to call people. You got to do this. Um, and what Cameron gets is, is, is pretty obvious too, money, right? So, you know, Politicians, they leave office, a lot of them in the UK at least, and you know, I think it's true in Australia too, they go and work for private companies. Typically, I guess they will work for, you know, giant multinationals. Um, you know, UK um former UK Prime Ministers have gone to work for the likes of uh JP Morgan. Um what Cameron was a bit different, right? So there are a couple of theories. One is that, you know, his his brand was kind of tarnished by Brexit. And so actually the big Wall Street banks weren't that keen to to offer him a job. I'm kind of not so sure about that. I've, I've heard people say that, but I kind of think the big Wall Street banks wouldn't care. Um, <laughs> I think what what's more likely and what I have heard from my sources is that what was appealing to Cameron about Greensill was, a, he kind of thought it was cool, right? So he, Cameron, like, always wanted to be a bit cooler. So, like, a fintech startup, that's cooler than going to work for JP Morgan. Two, he didn't think it would be that hard work, right? <laughs> He'd have to go to a board meeting every now and then, and that would be okay. It's pretty cushy and, work, know, to be honest. Like, Sounds like it. Yeah, it's pretty cushy work. And the pay was going to be extraordinary. So if they had managed to, you know, green cell capital had IPO'd, I understand he would have been in line to receive tens of millions of pounds, maybe as much as 70 million pounds. Now, obviously that never happened. Greensill collapsed before the IPO. Nevertheless, uh, Cameron had a special deal which said that his uh, the stock that he was given, the options he was given, I guess, essentially, in the company um, would vest uh, even before an IPO. And so he was able to extract uh, I think the BBC said something like seven million pounds. I think it might have even been even more than that. Um, so this was, you know, 
lot of money for not a lot of work and pretty quickly and he gets to be cool um i think what he didn't do was enough due diligence on lex Greensill. Mm. i mean that's clear you know i think if, as an ex-prime minister the only thing you've got to sell is your reputation yeah. um your credibility and if you, you give it to the wrong guy you kind of really badly burned um i know he was warned by a, at least a couple of kind of very senior politicians who told him you know this guy don't touch him and yet cameron went ahead anyway um yeah i mean i think cameron has a lot to answer for because mm. i think you know his name definitely definitely helped like Greensill uh gain a lot more credibility yeah you know he flew cameron went with lex to Japan to secure the investment from SoftBank, which turned this company from being, you know, uh, worth uh, like a you know billion dollars to being worth several billion dollars. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, SoftBank Vision Fund put, uh, ultimately, well, they put eight hundred million in, another six hundred million in. I think in the end, they probably lost a couple of billion dollars, mm. and that was you know Cameron went with Lex to secure that. Wow. So he he's kind of critical to how big they how big Lex becomes. Absolutely. Um, what's uh, what's Cameron said about all of this since it's uh, un unfolded? Yeah, I mean he was pretty quick to distance himself. He did one he you know did one kind of appearance in front of Parliament when the inquiries initially happened, um, and since then he's like said nothing, totally refused to engage on it. Um, which I suppose is, you know, to be expected, disappointing, but to be expected. <laughs> um, fortunately, a lot of what a lot of what happened between him and Lex, we know because it was um, subject to this parliamentary inquiry into, you know, a couple of things: um, the kind of revolving door of politics and and uh, business um, inquiries into what happened to loans, government loans during the. COVID uh, period when uh, Greensill managed to secure quite a lot of UK government money. Um, and so a lot of actually Cameron's role at Greensill Capital is kind of public information now. Mm. Um, text messages and things like that, WhatsApp messages is already public. So, you know, yeah, he's pretty, he, he himself isn't saying much about it, um, but actually we have a lot already. It's pretty clear what his role was. Yeah. Is there any... Apart from reputational damage, is there any other exposure potentially that could fall on Cameron? Um, well, I think the big one is reputational damage. Let's just put it that way. Right, right, right. He doesn't have much left. Poor guy. I, I think, <laughs> look, the other thing he... he my understanding is he flew on the Greensill private jet a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know... And so that's that's a pretty big benefit, right? Like I don't know if he, I don't know how you pay tax on a benefit like that. Mm. So you know there could be stuff like that. You mentioned before. But I'm speculating now. Sure, sure. Don't worry about it. You mentioned before um, Australian politicians will also go into the private sector. Um, I was intrigued to see Julia Bishop uh, feature in the book. How close was she to getting mm. roped up into all of this? I mean, really close, right? So she was sort of, uh, uh, you know, like, you know, how much time did she spend with Lex? I don't know, but I think you know he was perceived as a kind of champion of, of you know, it's like something to be proud of. Mm -hmm. And so she was, she was out, um, 
you know, promoting Lex Greensill and was, uh, you know, a, uh, would have been, again, had the company continued, she would have been a board member. Um, she would have had a, definitely had a role wow. uh, going forward. She kind of was fortunate in some ways that it collapsed before yeah. she had too much exposure. See, that's, for me, that's particularly intriguing because obviously I, I don't know Julia Bishop at all on a personal level. I only know um, broadly what journalists have said about her over the years, but I, I kind of measure her as the best, all the best qualities of a politician with very few of the worst qualities. Um, the worst qualities being mainly lying, you know, um, flip-flopping on an issue purely for self-gain and so forth. Julie Bishop did strike me as someone who had like deep integrity to her values and was an intensely yeah. smart individual who really couldn't be taken for a ride. Uh, she was the most senior female politician for so many years in the Australian um, scene. And uh, so for you, for you yeah. to say that, yeah, she also fell for the Greensville, uh, you know, silver tongue. Um, I wonder, you know, yeah. what's the lesson in that? Is that just me giving too much yeah, credit to Julia will. Bishop or is there something deeper? I, th I think, look, he, he tried to, he tried to charm many, many, many people and, and, you know, lots of them did not fall for it. Um, so I think what it probably tells us is, you know, if you try to charm enough people, some of them will fall for it. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a guy like Greensill and so, you know, she did, um, and Cameron did, and so did a few other politicians, not, you know, actually politicians of different stripes, right? Like there were politicians from either side of the political spectrum in the UK who were somewhat involved one way or another. Um, I think, you know, it probably teaches us these people all kind of lean on each other a bit, right? So if like, you know, if David Cameron's on board, then maybe Julie Bishop thinks mm. it's, 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 it's okay, you know, um, if the guys raised a couple of billion dollars, then people think, oh, it must be somebody else must have done their due diligence. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, like leaving the politicians aside for a minute, just thinking about the big investors in Greensill Capital, right? The, the first really big investor is a private equity fund out of the US called uh, uh, General Atlantic. And they put about a quarter of a billion dollars in. They, you know, had sort of tracked Lex for a while. They realized there were some flaws with him, but probably a little bit arrogantly believed that they would be able to fix them, that they, they were, you know, that was their job as private equity investors. So they put their 250 million in and then kind of realized pretty quickly afterwards, oh no, we can't fix him. But they're fortunate in that, you know, SoftBank Vision Fund comes along and does like eight weeks of due diligence before putting 800 million dollars in <laughs> partly because they look at general atlantic and go well those guys are really smart and they know what they're doing so let's just put some money where they are wow. um, and that allows general atlantic to essentially get out you know so they're they're totally all leaning on each other right yeah. people are just like you lex has kind of figured out like if you can get one politician or big investor then actually you can get more of them because they'll all just kind of you know assume the last one did their job properly mm. Uh, that's so fascinating, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, who 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 knows what supply chain financing is at the level of detail that Lex is selling it on? 
and yeah, the propor- the precautionary principle yeah. goes out the window once you see, oh, I respect that person's reputation. Um, if they're on board, I'm on board. <laughs> what else do I need to see? There's, there's no way David Cameron really understood the intricacies of supply chain finance. <laughs> you know, just no way, right? Um, but once he's in, well, like, you know, the next one kind of thinks they don't even need to, they don't even need to think yeah. about that. All they need to know is that David Cameron's in. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally, totally. I wonder as well, I mean, you. I, I imagine you and your journalistic colleagues could uh, rapture on this for days, but how many existing similarly, you know, balancing on a knife's edge financial institutions are there out there at the moment strung up on similar dynamics? Yeah, I mean, I dread to think really, <laughs> um, I, you know, I think I think we're we're starting to see them get flushed out a little bit, right? Like we we went through a period post financial crisis where there was just so much money knocking around. Uh, you know, like if you go to if you go to the people at the Vision Fund, right? And the, they had a hundred billion dollar fund. Um, they lost probably a couple of billion dollars on green cell. Um, I think they're kind of okay with that. You know. <laughs> I mean, it sounds, it's like extraordinary to say, I but I think they're kind of like, well, yeah, but we'll make a couple of billion dollars somewhere else. So yeah. um, that's okay. But I, I think, you know, that's sort of uh, that time where there was just lots of money around. Clearly that's coming to an end, right? With interest rates rising around the world and, and so on. Um, we're in a very different world to where we were maybe two or three years ago. And so, so maybe, you know, if, it would be impossible to pull off a green cell capital now. Mm. You've mentioned a few times throughout the chat, uh, just offhandedly, but avoiding tax or creative accounting and so forth. One of the major themes in this podcast has been the cancerous nature of offshore finance and financial secrecy. Nicholas Shaxon, one of the godfathers on this topic, has been a repeated guest, as has a number of other people who have written explicitly on the topic. And although it's not explicitly spoken about throughout the book i imagine um you would have just especially as a former accountant yourself just come across case after case of wow this is hidden under layers and layers of secrecy how much yeah so underneath all that question is just asking you what role the offshore uh, financial system played in all of this yeah, the offshore the the offshore structures I think are really important when you start to look at the kind of murkier loans in the green cell world. So um, just to give you an example that's fairly straightforward, um, there's one loan that Lex makes to a company called Atlantic Fifty Seven. Uh, it's it's owned offshore, I think, in the British Virgin Islands um, through a couple of other structures. Hard to pin down who exactly owns it, but you know, I was able to ultimately find that it was a longtime associate of Lex Green Cells, um, and the loan is maybe twenty million pounds or thereabouts. Um, it doesn't get paid back when when the GAM funds collapse, which which is what happens there. And by the way, GAM is like a complete basket case of a company these days. But um, <laughs> when the when the, the GAM funds collapse, um, that that it, that loan is sitting there um, and it needs to be dealt with. Um, a few months later, I was looking at the Credit Suisse funds, which Greensill had kind of started up to replace the the pot of money he lost when GAM uh, stopped working with him, and the this Atlantic 57 loan suddenly appears in these Credit Suisse funds, which are now kind of Liechtenstein and Luxembourg funds. 
Um, but I can see them because they disclose enough information I can see it. So then I go to Credit Suisse and I say, hey, you know, this loan that's in here, this has been around for a while now. And by the way, it was in the GAM funds, which collapsed. And, you know, by the way, it's tied to Lex's friend by these offshore entities. And the, the Credit Suisse guys there kind of plead ignorance. And then the next set of Credit Suisse documents that appear, it's gone. Um, and you don't really know where it goes until Greensill as a whole collapses and suddenly it appears in the, the German bank that he owns. So this is, this is like, you know, an, a loan to an offshore entity whose ultimate ownership is unclear, but it, but he can kind of tie it to a friend Alexis and, you know, it starts off in one fund, moves to another fund. They're both offshore. Then it ends up in a German bank. You know, this is like complicated you know it's a shell game of shuffling money around um you know that is is a classic kind of offshore mess really um and actually you know right now that whole sort of weird structure that he set up is 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 causing so many problems right as the the wind up of green cell capital has become really really complicated because there are so many different uh entities in so many different jurisdictions that um lawyers and, and, and the people who think they're owed money are really struggling to figure out, you know, how to get to it. <laughs> that is an incredible example. Thank you for, for giving it. And um, although it might seem like a redundant question, could you highlight what the problem is with that entire structure that you just laid out? Yeah, well, the, the problem with that one in particular is um, that this loan was sitting at different times in funds that were marketed, like so, these are investment vehicles marketed to to um, you know to some ordinary investors as safe, reliable, um, low risk loans. And clearly, that is not a safe, reliable, low risk right. loan. In fact, as as I said earlier, it's not really a loan at all, right? It never gets repaid, so that's not a loan. That's just a payment to Lex's friend. Yeah, and so it is. It is very explicitly a cover-up to benefit the financiers and not hold anybody uh, okay. accountable at the end of the day. I think that's exactly right, yeah. I was going to say, you know, the other the other thing about something like that, right, is this is this is 20 million. I think it ends up being like 35 million because the loan, there's a bit more added to the loan every few months when it's not repaid. Um, the, 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 the thing about something like that is you know, in these, in this world where he's got like billions of dollars of loans in theory to, you know, Coca-Cola and Nestle and so on, that 35 million is sort of immaterial, right? Except that there are lots of the 35 millions. And actually they're the only, they're the only amounts on which he's actually recording any profit. So this might be putting you on the spot a little bit, but since you operate in the world of financial journalism, you're a trained accountant. I would be really, really keen to hear you answer the following. Um, could you red pill the audience on just how pervasive and cancerous the offshore financial network and financial secrecy is on the globe? Not to be too hyperbolic with the question, but I just uh, yeah, want to present it to you as that and hear what you think. Uh Yeah, it's a tricky one to say, like, what, are, you know, to quantify, it, I think is difficult, but I think it's clearly deeply problematic. Mm. Um, 
you know, I, I can I can tell you again, just to go back to Green Cell, look, another another way of looking at Green Cell is that he set up a business that kind of sat in a regulatory like gray area, like a, a no man's land, right? So he's got a parent company that was uh, registered in Australia, audited by a pretty small Sydney-based auditor, like very small. Um, he's got a main operating company in the UK, which is audited by a pretty small UK company, despite the fact that it's got um, billions of dollars of transactions in theory running through it. Um, he is registered with the UK Financial Conduct Authority through a kind of third-party registration system, which is usually used for like small family offices. The the funds that make the green cell loan, so like the Credit Suisse funds, are listed in Luxembourg and Liechtenstein. So they're in theory kind of regulated there. Um, the German bank, which sort of shuffles asset, he shuffles assets in and out of, are kind of it's kind of regulated there, but it's like not that big a deal in in Germany. So he kind of manages to sit this whole thing, you know, in a place where it's not really clear who is who is really on the hook for regu for regulating green cell as a whole or auditing green cell as a whole, and that's because he's able to set this up in you know in this complex global way. And one of the other benefits might be that he can now sit in Bundaberg and presumably still have access to incredible amounts of money, which no matter what criminal um, conclusions might fall upon him, they will never have access to and was never taxed and et cetera. Mm. Yeah, well, so this is a really good point, right? So he's... Uh... The, a lot of money came out of green cell, right? Like uh, several hundred million dollars went out. Uh, you know, when, when SoftBank put its money in, uh, not much of that was used to kind of invest in the business. Most of it was used to pay out investor, like previous investors. So Lex, his brother, um, took, took a lot of money out. Um, so a lot of that money has ended up in the farm, right? Which is what's enabled them to grow the farm to such a, a big, big size. Um, they're actually, you know, it's funny you talk about the tax uh, situation because actually he did, you know, one of the things before it collapsed was he was in a big fight with the Australian tax authorities over an unpaid tax bill. 50 million Aussie, I believe, oh was God. the number. But I'm maybe uh, yeah, so he, he was... Generational he had Yeah, so he, well, he'd structured this investment... Look, I'm, I'm no expert on this bit, but there was a there was a part of the investment, I think, of either his or his brother's in Greensill Capital was structured through a trust. Um, and when they kind of cashed out some of the, 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 the stock, uh, they didn't pay any tax on it um, because of this trust structure. But the Australian tax authorities uh, subsequently ruled that they should have paid tax on it. Um, so you know, there's a clear example of some of of him trying to minimize tax um, and being accused of doing it wrongly. Um, but yeah, I think you know this is not uncommon, right? Like I think most people who have founded businesses like this will go out of their way to minimize their um, their tax bill, um, and there are you know there are legitimate ways to do that, but. Um, mm there are also ways to do it which seem less legitimate. 
Which is at the core of the problem, right? Like Lex does not stand alone in having abused these systems. It's oh. it's common practice, um, and therefore, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, just to return to that question for one moment, uh, this is how Bradley Hope answered it. Uh, he was the journalist who broke the story of uh, Joe Lowe and the billion dollar whale, and you know, just an absolutely phenomenal journalist, in my opinion. Um, he said that. The red pill would be as follows, basically. You could be a regular guy and you could be just working at a cafe in London and completely unknown to you, the owner of that building is 40% owned by some Russian oligarch. And so you're there, irrespective of what your politics are, your morality, but you're generating revenue that ultimately a piece of is going to be paid towards the rent of a building that is owned by... Um, someone who in other circumstances you might refuse to sort of work for. And that's a really, I think in my eyes, like a good red pill moment. Like, okay, yeah, that's one totally true and uh, really brings it down to the personal level and makes you start to, you know, have a little bit more legitimacy to your grievance about income disparities and wealth disparities and tax breaks and so forth. Because you can just sound like a bleeding lefty if you're complaining about it all the time. But, you know, once you get into it, it's like, no, it's so unfair. It's 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 absurdly unfair. So that, I thought, yeah. stood out to me as a great example from Bradley Hope. So I just wanted to, with that context, see yeah. if you something could come to mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, I agree. Bradley's fantastic former colleague of mine and a brilliant, brilliant journalist and has done many, many good stories. Um, look, I think, um, you know, let me let me give you a different thing, like a slightly different thing. Right. So um, uh, but but similar and it, you know, I'm getting at like similar level of cynicism about the way that the whole global financial system is sort of rigged. OK, so um, Credit Suisse had about $10 billion of their clients' money in green cell funds when it collapsed. Um, the, the details of why it collapsed are a little bit complicated, but not too complicated. Um, but they were warned by me and others that you know, they'd, invest, they'd invest their clients' money in, in some things they shouldn't have invested in. So why, when, why then didn't they pay them out? Like, why didn't they pay their clients back? What, you know, what's happened there? Well, because if they pay their clients back, um, then the Swiss financial regulator will say to them, well, look, if, you, if you're always going to pay back uh, your clients uh, when you make a loss on their, their investments, then you're going to have to reserve that much capital against all of your investment funds. And so for Credit Suisse, that's really problematic. So that means they sort of know, they certainly know now that they were ripped off and taken for a ride, but they kind of can't admit it because if they do, it's going to, you know, going to cost the bank, uh, you know, billions more. Now, Credit Suisse, as it turns out, is gone now anyway, but, <laughs> you know, that was part of why, like, they, they, they're reluctant to admit the truth, right, which is a, a couple of our portfolio managers um, didn't do their work properly and got ripped off. Um, and, you know, that is a, there's another way that the system is kind of rigged, I think, right? That even when, even when these sort of scandals come to light, actually the big financial players ha don't have that much incentive to like acknowledge it. You know, it's not good for them to say, yeah, we got ripped off. Since you brought up Credit Suisse, as you noted, they've since um, been bought by their biggest competitor for a bargain. 3 billion francs. Um, and The Economist made a direct connection between Credit Suisse collapse and the Green Seal affair. 
So could you explain, in addition to what you just did, $10 billion they had on the hook for in Greensill's demise? Um, yeah, how significant was Lex Greenfield and his whole grift towards the demise of this really ancient institution uh, and at the core of global finance? Yeah. Well, I think I think really, really critical, actually. I, I think it's probably misunderstood how important green cell in particular was, because um, what happened at Credit Suisse in the end, you know, there were many, many scandals at Credit Suisse and many kind of um, strategic issues and, and, and problems there with with the bank uh, over the years. Um, but the big thing that happened to them in, in the last 18 months or so was that uh, a bunch of their clients People who'd invested money in Credit Suisse's, um, uh, or in, had invested money with Credit Suisse, um, decided to pull their money out, and and we're talking like billions of dollars. Not you know a lot of money was coming out, not not you know small amounts of money. This is not even like you know retail depositors. This is this is people with serious serious money pulling it out, and the reason they're pulling it out is because. Um, you know, they're, they're frightened that they're not going to, that if something goes wrong, Credit Suisse, they'll lose their money. And what was it like, you know, what was a big indicator of that it was Lex Greensill and Greensill Capital. Um, and, you know, when, when that happened, they didn't stand by their, their, their clients. And so I think, you know, I think Greensill Capital plays a huge role <laughs> in, in uh, what, what happens in, to Credit Suisse in the end. To kind of tie that back into an earlier speculation I made about Lex's moral compass and his the fact that uh, Bundaberg might still welcome with open arms as like a bit of a you know someone who really made something of himself within the community. That on your resume alone, you know, was was absolutely fundamental in the destruction of a giant global institution. In a non-ethical worldview, is quite an achievement in itself. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally agree. Like it's it's unbelievable, right? Like that this guy, you know. Grew up in a farm in Bundaberg, you know, sort of um, blagged his way in finance, <laughs> and then you know, plays a major part in destruction, the destruction of a, of a global, you know, one of the biggest banks in the world, one of the oldest biggest banks in the world. Mm. Um, it's, it's incredible, right? Um, you know, and and when you sort of add it all up, you know, the green cell story is really it's like fascinating, right? Like prime ministers' reputations are damaged forever. Um, Politicians, you know, more than you know, more than a handful of politicians get in real trouble. Hundreds of millions of dollars are missing. Billions of dollars are missing still. You know, uh, investors like SoftBank lose billions of dollars. Credit Suisse goes bust. Gam is, you know, struggling to survive and is kind of being passed from one potential buyer to another. It's it's pretty amazing that this this happened. And I think it's it's sort of. Um, you know, I think it got lost a little bit in the UK as a scandal because it became such a political scandal. The financial element of it got forgotten about a little bit. It became about lobbying, you know, former prime minister lobbying on behalf of the company he worked for. But what, you know, what got lost a little bit in that was that it wasn't, it wouldn't have mattered if he was lobbying for a company he worked for that was a legitimate company out to do good business. It, what matters is that he's lobbying for a company that is accused of being a Ponzi scheme and which is, you know, implicated in all of these uh, major, major disruptions in the financial markets. Mm. I think that was a terrific summary. Um, so let's wrap it up there. I've got a couple more questions for you, not necessarily Greensill related, but they try to ask them to as many guests as possible. You still got a bit of time? Sure. Brilliant. Um, 
Oh, I lie. One more on the Green Seal Affair. Um, who, at the end of the day, were the victims of all of this grift? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. So I think it, it gets it gets lost and forgotten a little bit. But you know, there are investors in the Credit Suisse funds who lost money. So there, are, you know, some of those are big institutions, but there are individuals. Um, and sure, they're you know relatively wealthy individuals, but nevertheless, they lost millions, millions of uh, dollars. There are you know there were a thousand employees at Greensill Capital, most of whom thought they were working for a legitimate fast-growing business, and they're all out of work. Um, there were, uh, there were along the way, a couple of whistleblowers who, you know, were, whose careers were ruined, whose kind of lives were shattered because they, you know, had the nerve to speak up and say, there's something wrong here. Um, I think there were a lot of victims, um, of green cell. And then of course, you know, if you look at the sort of value destruction, whether it's at, uh, the SoftBank Vision Fund or anywhere else, like th these are often it's like pension money right pension fund money and, and so on so the, the money the money came from somewhere you know the money that got lost came from somewhere and at the end of the day it's kind of you know the the, the victims might not be easy to spot but they are there and with that being said with the assumption that lex is monitoring everything duncan maven and that there is a very real possibility he listens to this conversation is there something you would want to say directly to Lex? Oh, that's a really good question. Look, I've tried to, I have talked to Lex in the past before it all blew up. I talked to him several times and um, I've tried to talk to him since. Um, he is much less friendly now than he was before. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, I think it's, it's really tough to say what, how we would talk right now. There's so much going on for him uh in different lawsuits and investigations and and so on um i prefer to find out what happens uh as a result of all of those those sort of dynamics and then maybe ask him a couple of questions based on the outcome <laughs> okay nice so no direct there is one direct question i suppose i could ask um you know, there's an anecdote in the book uh, about my car being broken into. And, uh, you know, pretty sure it was a corporate espionage type thing. Um, and so I'd just like to ask him if I could have my sweaty gym bag back, please. <laughs> nice. That's framed as a memento in his uh, rumpus room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. Okay, well... um uh, incredible, Duncan. Thank you so much again for all of that. Um, really, there's only three questions that I try to ask every guest. And so, ah, damn it, I, I keep setting this up the wrong way. Um, a really fascinating detail from all of this, uh, not related to Lex, but is that this all started for you from a, a tip from a long-term source of yours. And so I wanted to ask about when you are talking, you know, with your mates, uh, fellow journalists, how often are big stories incepted by an anonymous tip versus first-hand journalists digging where they uncover it themselves? Um, 
That is a that is a good question. You know, I think the best stories usually come from a tip. Um, and that's because, you know, as journalists, we're only, uh, we are very reliant on the quality of the information we can get hold of. And people who are uh, already inside a business or know a business inside out or know about a scandal uh, in detail obviously have better information than we do. You know, it, occasionally I think a journalist will kind of, you know, dig through some accounts and find a number that doesn't make sense. But it's rare, I think, even then that they've done that without somebody pointing them in the right direction. And now that you've published a book that explicitly speaks to a financial, a case of financial fraud, alleged financial fraud, do you suspect your tip line to increase? Um, yeah, it already has. Ah, oh, that's <laughs> it already. Has. That must be that must yeah. be so rewarding. It, it is. It is the the challenge, right? Is that um, people come to you with uh, what they perceive to be like genuinely interesting tips and stories, and in many cases they are right. They're really interesting things. Sometimes it's difficult to t figure out how do you turn this into a story. Um. Sometimes it's just difficult to verify it, right? So you might get a little bit of information from one person, but how do you verify it from numerous different angles? You know, how do you make sure that it's not somebody who genuinely thinks that they've got, you know, something real to tell, but maybe doesn't understand some other bits of the story? Um, and sometimes it's just a matter of time, right? Like you, you just don't have the time. You're dealing with lots of other things. Um, I mean... Look, I, I when when I've come across interesting things lately, I've tried to keep them, you know, I've tried to be really upfront with people. Say to them, "Look, I'm interested in what you're saying. I'm not sure I can make it a story, but if you want to keep talking to me, if you want to keep helping me try to figure out how we make it into a story, like I mean, I'm interested in doing that, but I can't promise anything." Right? And I think I think that's the only fair way you can be with sources right and then you have to be you know you've got to be you've got to exercise due skepticism uh, about their motivations and the motivations of everybody else uh, that you might talk to and finally do you think that we live in an age of unprecedented financial fraud uh, i think we i think we live in an age when there is an incredible amount of money around uh, where possibly, you know, the financial system is so complicated and, and, and so globalized that there are places where, you know, bad actors can seek to make money in bad ways. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, I guess for that reason, just the scale of the money, the scale of the, you know, global economy we, I think you're right. We, we, we do. But, you know, are people worse now than they were a um, hundred years ago? I, I don't know if that's true. Um, you know, Charles Ponzi, the, the uh, name behind the Ponzi scheme, that's a hundred years ago. So um, people have been doing bad stuff for a long time. I'm going to publish an episode in a few weeks with a guy called Matthew Friedman, who runs the Mekong Society. I don't know if you've heard of him. Yeah. Uh, no, you have. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well then I'm sure you're familiar with the 
absolute horror that is uh, at the core of his job. And if you take his worldview, um, yeah, it's worse than it's ever been. Um, you know, obviously you covered a big global fraud case of fraud, but more um, individual cases of financial fraud, it's uh, worse than it's ever mm. been and more accessible to more bad actors than it's ever been. And yeah. one of the worst parts is that the exact same financial trans um, hidden, the exact same forces of lack of financial transparency and offshore networks enable the scale of these organizations just as much as they enable the scale of Greensill Capital. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think that just the sort of scale of the global economy, the the, the speed with which transactions happen, um, you know, I think that it, it's likely that there is more uh, happening now than there has been um, uh, in absolute terms. I, I I don't know if it's true in kind of proportionate terms, right? Um, there's some pretty bad financial stuff happened historically. <laughs> All right, Duncan, three that I try to ask everybody. First of all, um, what is the role that serendipity has played in your life? Oh, I mean, huge. I think, um, uh, look, I, I was, a, I was a, I studied history at university. I became an accountant. I kind of traveled the world with accounting. I became a journalist, traveled the world with journalism. You know, those things have all happened through kind of serendipitous kind of happenings um this particular like writing this book is probably the most serendipitous of all of them um as 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 we talked about like a, a long time source somebody who i think i you know had earned the trust of set me on the path to writing about this thing and it's been a major part of my life actually Incredible. And in your personal life, anything worth commenting on? Uh, oh, I don't know. I am now. I'm really on the spot. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I um, look. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I, I kind of am really interested in getting to the truth of things. I have a pretty strong sense of of kind of right and wrong, I guess, and. Uh, that that is always that sort of drives me a bit hmm. uh if you could what is a country that you're particularly bullish on that's a that's a difficult one you know i'm really interested in india um i just think that you know india's role in the world is going to be huge over the next however many decades i think it's just going to be so important you know how the, how the West relates to India in particular, and so I'm I'm a bullish. I don't know, but I'm really interested to see how India sort of evolves. Um, clearly, it's going to be really important in every every aspect of kind of uh, you know whether we're, whether we're talking about climate change or whether we're talking about economics or um, geopolitics. I think India India is really really important. And are you optimistic about the role they'll play? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, you know, at the minute I don't feel very optimistic about, you know, many places. Um, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's difficult, I think, to find anywhere to feel really bullish on. Yeah. Not the great state of Queensland and the city of Bundaberg. They just had a bunch of capital <laughs> flight fled into the city. <laughs> 
Well, you know, I think uh, I heard there's some uh, really big things happening in sweet potatoes there. <laughs> All right. And finally, Duncan, if you could witness a conversation between any two people of history, dead or alive, no language barrier. So if you were to listen to a podcast, who are the two people you would want to be listening to? Okay, so I, I'm, uh, well, I'm, you know, a history graduate, um, really, really kind of, it's it's a tough, tough choice for me, um, but uh, I'm kind of, I'm really interested in uh, the Battle of Trafalgar, and so uh, <laughs> Richard Nelson, I would, you know, before he's shot, before he's finally dying, I think would be just a fascinating character, especially because he's kind of such a, like, a, you know, gung-ho kind of guy mm. um and you know my other real sort of uh passion i suppose is as uh, football so if i could put together like horatio nelson and, and pele and uh hear them talk about the best tactics to win uh that would probably be a pretty interesting one i love it super eclectic thank you so much duncan um yeah uh, and thank you for the book. It it was uh, it was it was such a good read. Uh, I loved it. Great. Thanks, Ryan.